Hello, I'm Leslie Gorka-Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on newsworthy legal topics. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear two cases that touch on 47 U.S.C. Section 230, which is the provision of federal law that grants social media platforms immunity from liability. Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tamina concern the situation where social media platforms, YouTube and Gonzalez and Twitter and Tamina, posted ISIS videos that plaintiffs claimed led to the ISIS attack that killed their children. Under Section 230 as we know it, the social media platforms are not liable, but the Supreme Court's decision to hear these cases suggests that it's about to change. Today, I'm thrilled to discuss this issue with my guest, Eric Goldman, who is the leading expert on all things social media and really all things internet. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm really thrilled and honored. You are, without doubt, the expert on social media law in the country, and no one will challenge that suggestion. So I I wanted to ask you today about two cases that are pending before the Supreme Court. One is Gonzalez versus Google and the other um, Twitter versus Tamina. And I'm wondering if you could first kind of put them in context and explain a little bit about what's going on. Well, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. Uh, Let's start by putting in context with reference to the statute underlying the Gonzalez case. Um, That statute is Section 230, and it was Mm -hmm. enacted in 1996 uh, by Congress to basically say that websites aren't liable for third-party content. It's a very intuitive proposition when people think about it, that someone doing harm online is responsible for that harm, but other uh, players in the ecosystem may not be. And uh, so based on that legal framework, we've had the development of what we sometimes call Web 2.0, the phenomenon of us talking to each other online um, rather than being talked at or to. And uh, so the questions at issue in the Gonzalez case is whether or not Section 230, this law that basically says that websites aren't liable for third-party content, has an exception in the case where uh, the services make algorithmic recommendations. So the idea is that Section 230 still says that websites aren't liable for third-party content, but should the website use algorithmic recommendations, then Section 230 is off the menu, and then we get to other legal principles that decide the potential liability. Both the uh, Gonzalez and Tomna cases are part of a larger battle as well that's been taking place over efforts to suppress the use of social media by terrorist organizations. The short story is that everyone uses social media. That includes the terrorists. They'll use it too. And uh, there was a series of lawsuits that challenged the social media services for having provided access to their publication tools to these terrorist organizations. So these cases are both about Section 230, but also about this broader question, what do we want social media services to be doing about uh, terrorist-related content? Um, Are there reasons why they might be liable for it? So, yes, so so I know what we want. We don't want terrorists to have the information. The question is, what's the Supreme Court going to do about it? And I know that's part of kind of a larger issue to your point where it seems to me that at least two justices have regularly registered their dislike of it. But to be honest, I think that regardless of, you know, Democrats don't like 230 anymore, Republicans don't like any 230 anymore. I'm wondering if they're going to use this idea of regulating algorithms as a way to chip away from Section 230 in an effective mean. 
Well, uh, that's not exactly the um, question on the table. Uh, Congress could amend Section 230 to exclude algorithmic recommendations. They created the law. They can change it. Uh, and there have been a number of proposals over the years to do exactly that reform. None of them have gone forward. And so Congress has the power and hasn't exercised it. That should be a cautionary tale to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court might nevertheless say, we don't care what Congress has done or not done. They enact a statute, we interpret the statute, and we're going to interpret it in a way that might be very contradictory to the words in the statute, it might be contradictory to what Congress has actually said about Section 230. But they could just basically put the um, uh, Congress's feet to the fire saying, you don't like what we're doing, you can fix it. But until then, our statement is a law of the land. So it creates a really actually dangerous ecosystem because the Supreme Court might not defer to Congress. They might, in fact, usurp Congress's function. And if they do so, almost certainly whatever they say is going to be worse than what we have today. Yeah. And when you say worse than what we have today, I agree. But what do you think? What do you think they would do? I mean, when you say worse, do you mean getting rid of Section 230? You can't make it any, you know, give it, you can't give platforms any more immunity than they already have, right? So what 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 do you see the Supreme Court? I, I'm not asking you to be a um, clairvoyant, but do you have a sense of where the Supreme Court might take this? It's really hard to predict. Um, uh, all of the past allegiances and camps get put in a blender with these free speech cases. There's so many different conflicting norms and culture wars being fought and partisan uh, dynamics underlying these issues. It's actually really hard to read the tea leaves and come up with a confident outcome. Um, having said that, when I say that uh, it's almost certainly going to be a worse outcome, there's two ways that they could do uh, things uh, that would be worse. First is that they could reach the same general legal conclusion that we have today, but they could say it in a way that requires the litigants to spend more time to reach that inevitable outcome. So they could just make it more costly to resolve Section 230 cases, even if the defendants ultimately could win those. The other thing they could do is that they could change Section 230's contours in a way that would dramatically change the way that user-generated content works today. And the stakes there aren't really about Section 230. The stakes are, can we continue to talk to each other um, online the way that we want to, the way that we prefer to do so? And if services fear their liability for those conversations, they're not going to enable them. They won't more heavily intervene or they won't more lightly uh, touch, uh, they'll simply exit and say, this is not a, a, a tenable business model for us. So the stakes of the Supreme Court's ruling, if they change the substance of Section 230, could have these downstream ripple effects on the overall contours of the internet in ways that are hard to predict because we don't know what they've said, but almost certainly will involve us not talking to each other the way we think we want to. Yes, yeah, so, and, and that's a really good point because it may not be worth it for you know the big platforms, the Facebooks of the world, you know who are having other business issues aside, to stay in the game if it's going to cost them money every time someone brings a, a cause of action and there's the potential for liability. It's so ironic to me because if you go back and you look at the legislative intent of Section 230, it was basically so um, optimistic this idea that we want everyone to be able to speak to each other and we want to leave these platforms free from fear of liability because if they're busy fighting off cases, they're not going to develop. Do you think that if, if they do limit liability that it will, in addition, disincentivize the um, growth of future, not just current, but future um, social media platforms? Will it, you know, will it dramatically change 
Any new developments? It's a great question because I also view Section 230 as having an economic policy consequence, not just a speech policy consequence. Some people might see them as linked, but I actually see them as different. Not as Section 230 enables services to allow different kinds of conversations to take place between their users. So some are going to have lightly curated conversations. Others are going to have heavily moderated conversations and everywhere in between. And Section 230 says all of those are great. But Section 230 also says you can, as a, as a new entrant into the marketplace, you can come into this marketplace without having the war chest for litigation that Facebook has and without having the content moderation team and tools that Facebook has. You can develop those over time. You don't have to have all that capital organized and committed on day one. And so you can start small. And so Section 230 actually keeps open the industry for new entrants. Now, a lot of people will say, but it also creates these giants. And that's true. But if we have any hope of ever dislodging those giants, it's because of new entrants who will only have the opportunity to get into the market if Section 230 keeps the door open. So this may be an unfair question to you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, it sounds like it's the lesser of two evils that we either allow people, as you say, to chat with each other. And that includes some of the objectionable content like um, terrorists speaking to each other, which is the root of this case, or we condense the liability and um, restrict growth of future innovation. Do you have a preference? So, <laughs> I know that's so not I, fair, but. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's an entirely fair question. It's actually a well-framed question. But I'm gonna use different words. Instead of saying lesser to the evils, I'm just going to point out that any media policy for any kind of publisher, what, while they're offline or on, um, has trade-offs. And so we can change the liability scheme and we're going to get a different media ecosystem and it will be better for some and it will be worse for others. I'm a, I went to school um, uh, and, uh, and studied economics. And in, in economics, we talk about this notion of Pareto optimality. The idea is that we want to reach a, a policy conclusion where we can't make anyone better off without making someone worse off. And mm -hmm. I feel like Section 230 is actually that. If we change Section 230 to go in either direction to get more content moderation or less content moderation, we will make some people better off, but we will definitely make other people worse off. And so we're at a Pareto optimal outcome with Section 230. And then the only question is, do we want to make the trade-offs to reach some other point um, on that scale? One of the things I'm worried about is that we won't reach a new Pareto optimal outcome with those trade-offs. We'll reach something that actually makes more people worse off without making anyone better off. And that's just bad policy. And we literally have seen that done by Congress with Section 230. And the Supreme Court or Congress could easily do that again. That's so interesting. And just to put it in the, you know, I, I, when you're, as you're saying, speaking about, I'm thinking about just tort reform, because the same argument could be, you know, talked about there where we're talking about, you know, who's going to bear the burden, who's going to be better off. Um, so one of the things that as you're speaking, I'm thinking about is that what you're talking about really can be applicable to almost any area of the law, this idea of a trade-off. So I have one last question for you. And the question is this, coming down the pike is going to be a discussion, um, the Supreme Court has already indicated that they're ready to take, take cert on this, and there is a split in the circuits about two laws, one in Texas, one in Florida. Both laws try to restrict the ability of these platforms to censor 
content, but not just any, you know, it, 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 by restricting them to censor content, it takes away the ability of these platforms to censor offensive content or like the ISIS content or something like that. Do you think that when the court decides Gonzalez um, and the Twitter case that they're going to do it in a way that they know that they have a second bite in the apple because these other cases are coming down the pipe or you just think that they're going to take them individually and separately? Um, it's a great question. And it is actually one of the things that keeps me up at night. Um, and so let me explain. Um, so we already know that the Supreme Court is going to hear two cases, the Gonzalez case and the Tomna case. And they might grant a third and possibly even a fourth case, the third case being the Florida challenge. And then there's a Texas challenge coming right on its heels. And so it's possible that they'll have four different cases to evaluate all pending at the same time. Now, the Gonzalez and Tomna case will be earlier in the term. So it's possible they'll work on that before they actually work on the uh, Florida and or Texas cases. But it's almost certain that they're gonna have all four cases on their mind simultaneously before they make any decisions. Um, and what that does is it creates some potential horse trading in the back that the Supreme Court justices might be trying to put together coalitions to try and get the votes that they want. Um, and that those, those the conversations that have like, well, I'll give you more on this case if you give me your vote on this other case. Um, and that kind of horse trading almost certainly will end up worse off for the internet. Because in the end, all of these cases pose threats to the current internet as we know it. So any horse train that takes place, any kind of wheeling and dealing that the justices engage in will be wheeling and dealing the future of the internet as part of that. So I'm extremely worried that actually by having multiple cases, it gives them the opportunity to think, well, I'll give them 75% of what they wanted, and then I'll only have to be able to deal with the pain of 25% when any one of those decisions could end up being you know, a dramatic reshaping. Um, so I almost feel like the stakes may not be clear uh, for that horse trading. So do you think that um, if they're successful in removing the uh, limitation on liability for platforms, that the big, pla you know, the big platforms that we know, like the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world, which is, you know, Twitter now obviously is a little different, but because um, it's privately owned, but you think they'll stop, they'll cease to exist? So it's not worth no, it. no, but they'll cease to exist the way that we think about them and the way that we currently enjoy them. So let me say more about what's going to happen. Okay. And this is this this future really doesn't depend on either amendments to Section 230 in Congress or what the Supreme Court says, because it's the overwhelming crush of the laws that are being enacted, both domestically and internationally, that are driving services away from user-generated content. It's just too much liability. And the regulators cannot stop themselves from this. They cannot engage in the thoughtful question about what the trade-offs are and what the pros and cons of each decision are. Like, stick it to big tech. Who else care? You know, I don't care who else is affected. And the consequence of this is that services are going to migrate away from user-generated content, and they're going to migrate towards more professionally produced content. So what mm -hmm. they'll do is that there'll be these content creators who are in the business of making content. They'll get license agreements with these services to have their content um, online. Now, they'll, they'll be mean, license I mean, to drop, but you mean like influencers, that kind of thing? Well, influencers are one category, but, you know, it could be the traditional, uh, you know, content producers like the studios or the labels. Oh, okay. um, it can also be, uh, you know, uh, this new generation of 
uh, uh, celebrities that break out like a, an influencer in a particular niche. But those people are actually at pretty great risk because unless they have a big enough audience to make it worth the time and the service to engage with them on a one-to-one -one basis, they're not going to actually be able to even get access to the audience. They'll just be frozen out. So what will happen is I think that the internet's going to look a lot like Netflix. What I mean by that is that Netflix is great. You pay a monthly fee to get um, access to their paywalled content, and there's so much content on there. But it's not us talking to each other. It's Netflix deciding what they think we should want. And they decide who gets the uh, the voice in that conversation. Um, and so, you know, take a service like Google or Facebook. They can just say, you know what, we'll strike deals with a bunch of content producers. We'll create our own uh, media um, uh, ecosystem covered by a paywall that users have to pay us to. We'll share that money with the content producers. And so there'll still be a Google, there'll still be a Facebook. However, it's not us talking to each other anymore. Take another service like Twitter, put aside what Musk might do to it. And that's a, a more complicated question. But even if Musk hadn't taken over, what I think Twitter looks like in a post section 230 world is that there'll still be the politicians, there'll still be the celebrities, there'll still be the corporate brands, it's all the rest of us that are going to get chopped. Um, and we just won't have uh, access to contribute. Now, we'll still be able to read, but we're not going to be able to talk. And so it'll become this playground of people who are already um, powerful and famous. They'll keep to, to reiterate their power and fame. And the rest of us, we will no longer have a voice. Hmm. That's so interesting. It's also It also creates a socioeconomic issue because people who can't afford the paywall aren't even going to have access to get on onto these platforms. We um, talk about the digital divide, the idea that there's haves and have nots. Yeah. And today, Section 230 has, has actually made some incursions in that digital divide by making information available that's high quality at no cost. Without Section 230, if we move to this professionally produced paywalled content, we reinforce and exacerbate the digital divide. The haves will think no big deal. The have-nots, they're going to get left further behind in our society and in our economy. So interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's, um, today in the New York Times, there's an article about billionaires and how rather than buying yachts and mansions, they're now buying social media companies, which is kind of what's happening too. Um, I really appreciate it. I encourage my listeners to check out your blog. If you, It's all things social media, all things internet, and, and it's where I go. It's my go-to resource. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to me. Uh, really pleasure having a chance to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's my discussion with Professor Goldman. Hope you enjoyed it. Please reach out to us at legaltensor at westacademic.com if you have any questions, any concerns, or have any recommendations on topics about which you'd like to hear. Enjoy your day.